Coming to you from Venice, Los Angeles, California. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall, sitting down today with Dana Goodyear, a staff writer at The New Yorker whom you've certainly read on topics as ranging as far and wide as, say, Japanese cell phone novels with the filmmaker James Cameron or Two Buck Chuck, the beloved Trader Joe's budget wine. She's also written a, before, in recent years, she's written a postcard from Los Angeles column. If you live in this city and you read The New Yorker, you've certainly seen that. And I would imagine you've seen her new book, since it has so much to do with this city and so much to do with the eating going on in this city. It's called Anything That Moves, Renegade Chefs, Fearless Eaters, and the Making of a New American Food Culture. Dana, I think that every Angelina who reads The New Yorker will want to read the chapter that opens your book because it has something they want to see more of, which is more of your writing on Jonathan Gold, the food <laughs> critic here, the food critic in Los Angeles, who's writing on, on food and on eating and on restaurant going has been regarded as not just the best food writing out of the city, but some of the most astute writing on Los Angeles itself. When did you first realize the importance of Jonathan Gold after coming to Los Angeles? I got here in 2005 and almost immediately, you know, people that I was meeting would suggest outings. And instead of let's meet for coffee, it was Let's go out to the San Gabriel Valley where, you know, Jonathan Gold has reviewed this place out there. And I found this really, really interesting that he was, um, a guide to the city, almost, you know, m more, uh, meaningful than the Thomas guide. He was, he was a map maker for people and he encouraged people to get, uh, out of their neighborhoods and into places of, uh, sort of unfamiliarity and discomfort even and, and to eat things that also um, were a little bit uncomfortable often and, <laughs> and, and that a kind of, uh, social life and entertainment could be found in trying foods that challenged your, um, you know, your sense of what was delicious and edible and, um, that those experiences were kind of, um, worthy social experiences. I mean, I think that that's what he has, has done for a lot of people, but he's also tell, started to tell an alternative story about LA that is not the LA of the Peninsula Hotel and plastic surgery and, um, you know, people having grapes dandled into their mouths by underlings. I mean, yes. the, the sort of power LA story that a lot of the, um, the, the literature of LA reflects, uh, is not really to be found in Jonathan Gold's writing except in very sneaky and subversive ways. Mm, and in many senses, his is the, his is the major, his Los Angeles is some sense the majority of Los Angeles, right? The, the guy on a bus on Pico Boulevard is, there's more of him than there are of the, uh, Peninsula Hotel grape danglers, right? It's the, it's, the lived experience. It's the Angelino's experience of LA. And, um, I think a, a lot of the, the power LA story is told by visitors and it's usually the accumulated first impressions and doesn't really penetrate much deeper. And this is a city that can feel, uh, very superficial to a visitor. And one of the things that gold has done is to deepen the residence experience of the city, but also, you know, he's become the, the guide either in person or through his writing for, um, hundreds, I can say probably thousands of, um, 
New York magazine editors <laughs> visiting LA, um, and, and wanting to experience something of it, that, that there's a sort of intuition you have as an outsider or a person visiting LA that there's more going on, but you can't find it exactly. And so you end up feeling frustrated and, and blaming it on the traffic and going home. Yes. Um, all oh, these people, the city. Yeah. But he, he's you call this a bagel. <laughs> he, he has allowed for, um, a different, he sort of opened the door for a different story to be told about the city, I think. Do you think Jonathan Gold, the way he eats and the way he pursues food, does that say more, does it speak more to Los Angeles or does it speak more to the way that America is now eating? Well, I think it's both. I think it comes out of LA and is shaping the way that the rest of the country is is beginning to respond to food and think about food and even enjoy food. So I think, um, you know, he made this observation about, um, the depth of cuisines that, uh, come out of places of historical poverty eating and the sort of, um, cuisines of, of resourcefulness and those, the Latin American influences here in LA and the, um, Pacific, the Asian interest influences, um, have made this place, uh, kind of ground zero for that 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 sort of food and um and i think that the sort of adventurism that is implied by trying foods like that um those have become much more mainstream attitudes and um delicacies actually mm-hmm. so i think that i think like so many things it it, it came from here and has become the normal it see does seem like modern eaters are People going with the trends of modern eating, they, they're doing a lot themselves, whether they're going to shops that are doing a lot themselves, whether they are cooking a lot themselves, whether they are scouting out, scouting out traditional foods themselves mm-hmm. with signs on the doors they can't read in neighborhoods they've never been to. They're, they're doing a lot themselves. And this is, this is a city that rewards doing things yourself, doesn't it? Yeah, because I mean, no one else is going to do them for you. You're not going to be carried along by public transportation very readily or, you know. I got here on a bus, but it was unpleasant. Yeah, it's a a long haul. Um, Or the sort of, but that's just, you know, a metaphor. The subway in New York is a a metaphor for the kind of conveyance of ideas and energies and notions that, um, you know, you can just be kind of carried along by the crowd in New York. And as a writer in LA, I have felt very much on my own. Um, even though I have this really meaningful and thank God for it tie to the New Yorker, you know, I, I was working in the office there before and it was very easy to kind of have all my ideas in place for me before I even stopped to consider what did I think about something? I already mm. sort of knew what I thought because right. I had picked it up somehow, but the danger of autopiloting there. Yeah. Mm. For me. And, he, and here, um, you know, you definitely have your own responses to things because you're often working or thinking or just living in greater isolation. Mm. How did you get to Los Angeles? How or why did you come here? Um, I moved here just for personal reasons, and I've sort of convinced the magazine that it would be um, very possible and maybe even advantageous for me to, you know, that I could do my job better here in certain ways. Um, I was an editor at the time, and... Um, you know, it was just at the moment when that, that somewhat misleading, um, statistic about there being more New Yorker readers in California than in New York came out. Of course, there are more people in California yes. too, but, um, it was that exciting. Aside. Everybody was talking about it and, <laughs> and, um, and the magazine very generously let me, um, 
give it a go as, you know, working from home in LA. I think, you know, they knew me well. They knew that I would get up early and do my work and I, I wouldn't, um, you know, become a, a surfer slacker layabout. You were still editing then. I was still editing then. So that was the sort of, that was the difference. But, um, I started writing a lot more when I moved out here too. And, um, realized that that was a really exciting, the LA offered a lot of, um, possibilities for me as a writer that, that, um, I was so eager to try to make good on. So that's something we were chatting about before, chatting about before. Once you start writing about Los Angeles, you kind of, you kind of can't stop doing it. Can you, everything, everything just leads you somewhere else that you didn't even know existed here, whether that's literally a place or whether that's, you know, stuff you'd, most of the stuff going on in Los Angeles, nobody knows is going on, right? Right. It's a, it's a good place to, it's a, writing about LA is a great way of exploring LA. Um, but I do think that it is be, because LA is always so, um, meaningful and influential in, in terms of what the rest of the country is thinking and talking about maybe a couple of years down the road. It, it doesn't feel, like an irrelevant deep exploration of a city or, or just for its own sake. I mean, it feels like it has something to say to the national culture. Mm. Now, how soon after getting here, after starting writing about Los Angeles, did you realize you would be doing a lot of writing about food? Hmm. Well, I had been writing about food in New York too. So I had been um, writing tables for two restaurant reviews um, and the second long piece I did was about a food entrepreneur. Um, so that was writing about food was sort of part of my, uh, you know, my, my big file cabinet of interests, but about New York food before then, you know, it was, it was always no, about a different places. Food. The food entrepreneur was actually in Idaho. So it was uh, not, it wasn't just sort of neither here nor there, quite the scene in New York, but, but, um, but I think it really was probably the piece I did about animal in 2009 that um, got me really started down that road and trying to think about what made the food of L.A., what, what was happening in L.A., what made it different from what was happening elsewhere, what, what was starting here and being picked up rapidly by other people around the country and, and sort of what it meant, not just in terms of this weird thing of people being really interested in food and calling themselves foodies and all of that. But in terms of what it meant about how Americans are feeling about America and the future. And I started to see it as much more, um, uh, as a, 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 you know, as a lens to look at the culture more generally, and maybe some of the anxieties that are latent in the culture as, mm -hmm. as America feels it's, um, power in the world begin to be questioned. There is a moment in the beginning of the book, near the beginning, where you're sitting at a one of these experimental dinners and a 20-something next to you says something to the effect of, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've got to know how to make all this stuff ourselves. We've got, we've got to know these chef's techniques. So when America's institutions collapse, we can then turn survivalist. Well, there is this sense of... Um, Not if, when. Yeah, American, America's institutions faltering and people starting to eat like survivors of an apocalypse. I mean, there is, there, there is something and it. And the irony that it's happening generally among the most elite eaters yes. and, uh -huh. and that people who can afford to pay $250 for a, a, 
a, a night out, um, a person are eating things that would have been unthinkable, you know, but, you know, leaves and sticks and bugs and th- things like this. But then, you know, part of the Jonathan Gold revolution is also to democratize food. So there's a very interesting kind of convergence of the lowbrow and the highbrow also, of course, going on. And, and the idea that anyone can be a foodie, it's not, um, it's not a, a, a kind of hobby that's limited to somebody of great means or somebody of a certain, you know, age, gender, skin color, which would be, you know, old male who is white. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, being a foodie is a is actually, it's kind of a, a kid's game, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's all about the 23 year olds and, um, collecting their photos and uh, getting the thumbs up on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just people declaring that as part of their identity and kind of claiming that. And that's where I see sort of the, the, the pessimistic aspects of this have to do with, if you think that decline is a bad thing, have to do with the the anxiety about decline, but the optimistic aspects about it have to do with this sort of um, can-do spirit and this Mm -hmm. sort of um, deeper exploration of what our options are as eaters. Mm -hmm. Um, It may be a bit of an artificial conversation because the people who are participating in it are unlikely to be the ones who are actually... um, deeply disadvantaged by what's happening on a global scale in food, but um, at least it starts people thinking and talking about it. We talk about this adventurous eating going on at a time when we have less faith perhaps in America's institutions than before. And I think back to a time when America's institutions were at peak solidity, say the middle 20th century. Mm -hmm. And I think back to what people were eating then. I think back to my grandparents' generation. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's the words come up in in your book. I don't know if they're your words or quoted words, but they talk about the the babyish palate of America back Mm -hmm. then, how they liked meat and potatoes as bland as possible. And then something uh, quite a bit too sweet to follow it. You know, Mm -hmm. why was, America has got so you know it's the making of a of a new American style of eating. It's we've we've got quite far ahead now. But why did we start off so far behind? Why why were we the most advanced country in the world back then, eating like little kids? Your your young children eat more complicatedly and, and more advanced, I'm sure, than somebody who was born who was born in you know the the twenties was eating when they were middle aged. It's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that. The history of food in America has everything to do with the geopolitical history of America and, you know, the arrival of, um, of a European population to this country and this sort of lack of, um, a continuous cuisine. Mm -hmm. And so you had a, you know, very diverse population and a kind of lowest common denominator that was very, you know, it was uninteresting. I mean, it was the, um, but at the mid-century food, the, the, the bland mid-century food that also shows the first signs of kind of being industrialized food, right. because that was, you know, that was basically the effort of, you know, let's say from 19, just very crudely from 1900 to 1950 was the first wave of that. Um, and then you have lots of little mini movements in there that, you know, sort of making food more scientific and making it more uniform. And I think there was excitement about technological, uh, 
uniformity in food and it was a response to anxiety about, let's say, let's just say the jungle, because a lot that's a reference point that a lot of people understand and remember reading in high school. Um, the that novel, Upton Sinclair's novel, that really frightened people about what they were eating and the idea that, in particular, that they might be eating um, not only parts of animals that they weren't thinking they were eating, or you know, one animal rather than another animal, but that that actual human beings were maybe being processed in these um, industrial meat plants. So the, the rise of regulation in food and then the rise of uniformity in food and blandness, I, I think do kind of breed together in a certain way to give us that mid century um, palate and the, the, you know, the potato and the beef and the overcooked vegetables. But what was also beginning to happen starting in World War II, so a good deal before 1950, was the response to that and the the rise of the gourmet movement and the um, you know European immigrants coming from Europe either before or right before or right after the war, bringing with them this awareness of a much more eclectic and diverse food culture out there and and starting businesses here importing that food and and selling it to mainstream Americans as novelty food, specialty food. And what interested me about that period and the sort of beginnings of American gourmet is not the, not the glamour, not the kind of the people that we have read about, but um, it's the weird little, you know, the weird products that were being um, pitched very effectively <laughs> by these entrepreneurs. And, you know, some of that meant, you know, tinned tiger meat and barbecue baby bees and, and things that seem very shocking now. And at the time they were moderately shocking, but they were also, they were being, you know, held, sold and showed side by side uh, with, you know, imported caviar or, or runny cheeses from France. And, mm-hmm. and the idea that, those kind of shock foods were part of our original notion of gourmet is I think really fascinating and has kind of been lost. And, and then here, what do we see now in this sort of contemporary food movement? Um, a lot of that same kind of shocking fare. It's, I think it's pretty fascinating, but so even as you know, that mid century moment that idea of that bland food is sort of being crystallized in our mind, even 20 years before that, the, the shift had begun or 15 years before that the shift had begun. Um, and it was slow and it was subtle and no, it was only known to a few people, but, um, you can sort of trace it through the, the fancy food show in New York, which I think had its first, um, fancy food show. Yeah. Um, and now it, what happened to the word fancy? It used to be a marketing term. <laughs> yeah. I really wonder, do you know? I really don't know. I mean, now it's this, now it's the specialty food trade association or something, but, um, they had their first show in 1952 mm-hmm. and um, that's where you really see the beginning of a market for these products. And, you know, the sales doubled every year, you know, I mean, it was just, a, it, it took off um, exponentially and now we can't imagine a world without um, goat cheese. There's a very, very telling moment about this in a, a classic, albeit forgotten book about Los Angeles. We were discussing off mic a bit earlier. Uh, it's mm-hmm. by, I guess, a, a colleague back in time of yours at the New Yorker, Christopher Rand. The book is Los Angeles, the Ultimate City from 1967. Um, and I happen to, when this is up, listeners may have seen already, I have a profile of Rand in this book on uh, the LARB site. But in the book, he stays in the neighborhood 
now we call it Little Osaka. It's mm. Sawtell, I suppose, over on the west side, not terribly far from where we sit now. And he talks about a Japanese festival in the summer he's at, mm -hmm. where the Mexicans also attend, the Mexicans of the neighborhood. It brings the Japanese and the Mexicans together. He's talking about the food served there, served there at the festival. He says they were Mexican tacos and Japanese teriyaki, tacos and teriyaki italicized, mm -hmm. almost touching to see that, you know, <laughs> like there was an era when you would italicize tacos, mm -hmm. <laughs> teriyaki. But, yeah, but where was Roy Choi when that was happening? Well, I, yeah. you, you read my mind because I yeah. was going straight to Roy Choi and I was thinking, man, if Christopher Rand had seen <laughs> what we are eating now out of Roy Choi's trucks. And Roy Choi, you, of course, have written about for The New Yorker. Uh, what is what is Roy Choi's significance to the city besides being from here, besides making his name here and making foods like kimchi tacos so so associated with Los Angeles? I think there's so many things about his story that seems so L.A. to me. And one is, or, you know, so L.A., but so this moment in food. Also, one is the the kind of um, unlikeliness of his success. I think that a lot of people who are um, really becoming um, important in the food world right now don't necessarily come out of the traditional backgrounds. They, they have not been slaving away in, you know, the kitchens of the French chefs in New York for 10 years waiting to be recognized. Some of them have. And, you know, Corey Lee, another Korean American chef who kind of couldn't be more different from Roy Choi did, you know, he did that. Yeah. But um, Roy Choi was, I think, fired from a rest, a hotel restaurant kitchen and was sort of like, what am I going to do? And um, a friend of his had this idea or, you know, I, Hey, I'd really love to try. Wouldn't it be crazy if we, and this sort of, um, spark of innovation and the, you know, the inspiration. And, and then I think what's really sort of LA and now the country and now the, the world or the food cities of the world is the food truck. And the idea that you would, okay, in a moment where of, you know, decapitalization that nobody, nobody was going to give a fired restaurant <laughs> cook. Um, a million bucks to build a restaurant. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how they got together the money for the food truck, but a food truck is about a hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars. And it's something that can be accomplished in this, in a, you know, in the DIY spirit mm -hmm. and, um, and the idea that it could be mobile and that it could be, have a sort of, uh, constant, um, news generating quality just by showing up somewhere and the use of Twitter, which was, you know, everybody wondered what Twitter was for. And then the Kogi truck used Twitter in this way that announced Twitter's use possibilities to the world and, um, or at least to the food world. And, um, and I think was sort of the, one of the first narratives about innovative ways people are using Twitter had to do with the Kogi truck. So, um, they just, they were really, clever and responsive to the moment, not only to their own idea, you know, being open to their own ideas and thinking, you know, what the hell, let's just try it. But also using the available and sort of still unknown technology. Um, and then having the, just the smarts to use the food trucks, sort of seeing food trucks are all over LA, you know, anywhere that there are people congregating, there will be food trucks and, um, and Roacher, Choi grew up here and he knew that. And, um, just to see that as a possible, um, you know, I, I want to use the word vehicle, but I don't want to use the yes. word vehicle. A, well, I'm going to a vehicle for his idea. As it, were. Um, it was just smart 
Mm-hmm. And, and then of course the collision of the, of the Asian and the Latin American and the food idea is, you know, it's perfect for LA. I often see, or I often hear of the Kogi truck coming over to Venice where we are now. I don't know exactly where it stops, but it's, the brig. Oh, okay. The there we go. The That's where it, you've, I take it. You've had a taco or two out yes. of that. Mm-hmm. I see. I've, so I've, that element is here in Venice, but yeah. also you cover in the book, a, a raw foods grocery store that was here, Rawsome. It's not, not a place I ever had set foot in, but I guess it was a flashpoint for this debate in food standardization, food regulation. Why do people want to eat illegal raw foods? Mm, that is a very, uh, the answer is complicated. One of it, one aspect of it has to do with, um, de facto uh, rejection of foods that the government approves. It has to do with being appalled by um, certain things that uh, the government either mandates or permits. So pink slime, if that term is still um, known to people, you know, that was the um, lean, fine beef trimmings, I think, um, uh stuff gathered basically from the slaughterhouse floor and um, treated, chemically treated, ammoniated and processed and, uh, you know, all, all a USDA approved procedure and then sold to schools through the USDA school lunch program. So this sounds like I heard a story from a friend who worked at McDonald's in middle school and he said that they, that burgers, like they literally squoze a gel out of a tube and that was the beef, like the beef began as a gel. They put, is that the sort of thing you're talking about? I can't say for sure whether that is the pink slime, but it's definitely a kind of pink slime. I don't know if it was about pink slime. Um, It sounds similar anyway. (laughs) So similar product. So, so from a food safety perspective, Mm. maybe close to bulletproof, you know, it had been chemically treated, but from a food purity perspective, pretty upsetting to, I think, even very mainstream people. I mean, it was, it was a a parent's campaign against that pink slime that brought it to everybody's attention. It's been around forever. Um, so the question about Rossum, you know, why eat, why choose food that is illegal one aspect of that is just thinking that anything that is legal is probably gross because look at the stuff that's legal. It's, uh, it's a rejection of the, uh, authority figures and their, and, and their standards. And it's sort of a total inversion of the idea of food safety. And, um, they took it very far though. They, they, they also, the other component was a, a deep, deep, belief and faith in the healing properties of foods that hadn't been um, either, you know, refrigerated, pasteurized, put through any processed in any way. So, um, you know, when you have people who believe that their, you name it, cancer, autism, psoriasis (laughs) is, is being um, at least, uh, relieved in some way by eating these unprocessed foods, it's going to be pretty hard to get them not to eat it. And the idea that they're going to get a little fine slapped on them or something just makes them more defiant. And, you know, I can, I can understand that just the human perspective of someone telling you, you can't eat something that you think is making you or someone you like your child healthier. Um, but they took it very, very far. And in their uh, member agreement, because you had to technically be a member to join, uh, to, to shop there, although they were 
from my, what I understand, they could be pretty lenient in different periods there. And that was one of the issues that the, um, that kind of brought about the crackdown, I think. Um, but they had people sign a statement saying that a contract really saying that they welcomed the presence of listeria. They welcomed the presence of, um, uh, E. coli, the, the virulent strain of E. coli. And most customers love the poop on the eggs and the customers do claim to love the poop on the eggs. So there, there was a way in which it, when they actually spelled out their beliefs, it, it could sound pretty perverse Mm -hmm. and, and selling, you know, people willingly bought meat there that was, had no date on the package that was spoiled. That was, and there was a kind of um, notion that eating spoiled meat would strengthen your immune system. Your kind of, uh, the, the microorganisms would lead to, you know, gut health. Yes, um, gut microflora would yeah, defend you. Exactly. Mm. Um, and, and you, you had to, uh, go to a party thrown by some high profile weirdo who recently died, right? Who, who was big on eating spoiled meat, like a, like a soap. Who was this guy? He was like a soap opera actor. Agenis van der Planets. I wouldn't have been able to pronounce it had I remembered his yes. name, but that's, he, well, it was a particularly creepy encounter. You, you'll be shocked to know that wasn't his given name, but <laughs> yeah. um, he went by a bunch of different names over the years. He was a former soap opera actor um, who was, he, he became very influential as a, as a, I think a self-styled dietitian. Um, and he was originally part of the Rossum, uh, market. And then there, I mean, a more, uh, fractious group of people I've never encountered that there were fallings out, there were lawsuits, there were, um, that, you know, he claimed that the chickens being sold at Rossum were not free range. They were, mm-hmm. you know, Tyson chicken that was being repackaged. And so there was, there was, a, there were a lot of scandals around food purity, even there, because of mm-hmm. course, if you've got a lot of people who are obsessed with food, food purity, um, and they're also, uh, obsessed with un- lack of regulation, they're going conflicts, uh, and hijinks ensue. Um, but I did go to a party, um, at an apartment nearby here in Marina del Rey, um, a very kind of fabulous apartment, um, where it was a potluck party where you, everybody had to bring something that conformed to the primal diet. That's what Von Planets calls his diet. And, um, so I brought some raw butter that I happened to have, but other people brought oysters that were left out at room temperature and, um, raw meat that was, you know, left out in this hot apartment all day and was already kind of over the hill. Um, and, uh, ceviches of like chicken and fruit. I mean, it, I, I was very pregnant at the time and I, it's really hard for me still to even think about it. I'd never, I didn't experience a lot of, um, like morning sickness or, or food sensitivity while I was pregnant. Thank goodness. Cause I was, uh, reporting this book, but I really almost had to leave that party because it was, it was really, um, upsetting, but I met a bunch of people there, including some teenagers who were just sort of reveling in the idea of, of eating this way. And they were like, uh, physical trainers and, um, um, they were into MMA and that kind of thing. And, and the idea that this was going to make them just sort of superhuman and this vigor, it also sort of tied into, um, I felt some of the, um, survivalist, uh, Mm -hmm. motifs that this idea, um, kind of 
preparing yourself through diet for some kind of, uh, reckoning and also being able to eat anything, being so strong internally that you can process anything. Did, did this weirdo and his acolytes seem healthy? Like when you were, when you saw them, did they seem like they were benefiting from this or did they just seem like people who were fit and ate weird stuff? The, the young people looked pretty good, but they were young. Um, and they were doing other things like, you know, spending nine hours a day in the gym. But, uh, a lot of the older people were there because they have health problems. Right. So they were there to be healed. Yeah. So, you know, did, were they, you know, glowing, beautiful people? Not really, but, but the Rossum crowd actually, but yeah, that's because they were probably considered patients of Vonder Planets, but the Rossum crowd was a very, um, just in broad strokes, a very kind of attractive sort of yoga pantsy type of group. Uh, the Lululemon demographic. Yeah. The Lululemons. And, and, you know, a lot of actors, a lot of models, a lot of, so, you know, were they just eating the raw honey or were they also eating the spoiled meat, you know? Yeah. Um, or did they just like to be there? Or did they do, or what did, was it see and be seen? I think mm -hmm. it, there was some of that too. And it, it was sort of, you know, because it was a limited membership, it was, right. it was a kind of, um, in group aspect to it too. Even besides this Marina Del Rey raw party, you're always going in this book to secret gatherings. It seems like yeah. secret dinners, everything. So much of the eating you're doing is just under the, is under, not undercover, uh, not, not in that literal journalistic undercover sense, but exactly. it's in these places that are not, information is not given out about these places, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that that is a feature of the food movement now. And I looked at some of the more extreme aspects of that just as a way of demonstrating what's going on in the mainstream. But there is definitely um, a shying away from the overbuilt, overpublicized, totally on the up and up, you know, that the, right. this sort of these things go together being, you know, under the radar, not you know, intimate, not, uh, subject to health department regulations or, you know, just beneath the notice of the health department, um, semi-spontaneous, um, food as entertainment, the risk that is entailed with all of that. I mean, there, that is a, a significant part of the culture of this new food movement is that, that sort of underground quality. And there's on the flip side of that, so many places in the book you talk about restaurants that any well eating Angelino will be able to identify immediately just mm -hmm. by your description. There's ones you name, of course, ones you don't that, you know, the image came right to my mind of certain Koreatown places, mm -hmm. Koreatown where I live, places I love to go. So, oh, that's where she was. Poyo mm -hmm. uh, a for example. Uh -huh. But then there's, uh, say, at the very end, there's, there's Bahay Kubo. A home of the infamous, uh, the fateful Balut. What is that, by the way, for people who don't know? <laughs> Balut is um, a an unhatched duck or chicken egg. Uh, or no, let's see, how do I want to say that? Balut is an unhatched duck or chicken still in the egg, cooked um, right before you know, not long before it would have been ready to hatch, um, boiled in the shell and, <clears throat> and then eaten, you know, you chip, chip away the shell and then you eat it whole, the, the young, Im the immature duck or chicken and the, um, the white, the albumin. Um, so it's a really challenging 
for Westerners to eat typically because, you know, you're getting a little bit of beak, you're getting, you're getting bones, you're getting claw, you're getting eye, you're getting all the recognizable structures of um, the creature as it will be. And that's not a way that we're accustomed to dealing with any animal, but particularly poultry, I think. Um, Even you know, Jonathan Gold won't eat this. Yeah, we like it. We like, you know, to isolate the parts and mm-hmm. eat them out of context. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, this was presented to me at the very beginning of my reporting as kind of the ultimate food challenge and something that, you know, you think about. There was a there was a bullet eating contest in New York not too long ago, which, <laughs> you know, I think could only happen now. Yes. I mean, imagine even... 10 years ago, that would have been totally unthinkable. And now because of the, because of this sort of culture of challenge and, um, and some machismo and some, and it is typically a a male food, um, and it's Manila street food. It's from the Philippines. And, you know, I definitely got some raised eyebrows when I saw some raised eyebrows when I, when I ordered it, um, and was told explicitly told not to order it. Um, but um, I think it comes out of also these, you know, the, the travel and food channel shows that, that show sort of, can you believe people eat this? But it's also in the spirit of, you know, look, there's more to eat out there than what you have considered food. And if you're willing to eat a chicken breast, what, let's really look at it. Why are you not willing to eat? Why is this right. disgusting in a chicken breast that is, you know, um, pumped up with, saline fillers and hormones and, um, and antibiotics and further is the product of, um, you know, such extreme, uh, animal husbandry that they're genetically unrelated to chickens from 50 years ago. I mean, you know, and the conditions that those chickens live in and all that, you know, if you're okay with all of that, why aren't you okay with this? And, and I I think that the sort of new food people are more likely to be okay with bullet than with that kind of Tyson chicken that we're talking about. That, that framing of it, that, that this is all about expanding one's eating horizons. It's a framing I like of all this, but then I keep thinking of, I think of something like a bullet eating contest. Is this a sign of a culture that's just sort of out of things to do? Well, it, it certainly leaves itself open to that interpretation, um, that it's eating a sport or that Jonathan Gold calls it dining a sport. You know, I think that it is all of the above. I think it is excessive and resourceful and it is about, um, sort of broadening and, and a kind of more global perspective on food. And it's about, you know, a kind of, celebratory gluttony of, you know, um, looking for entertainment. But I do think that as far as American food culture goes, this will be enriching. Mm -hmm. I think it's, we'll be in a better place for all of this. And when the kind of, um, fervor of it dies down, when the bullet eating contest just seem totally silly and, and when the kind of competitive aspects have also faded because more people are eating this way. And so what's the big deal? I think we'll be left with a much more interesting food culture. And, and another th- thing that I think, you know, people are the, the, the sort of male dominated aspect of it is interesting. And, um, I think can lead to some un- unfortunate situations and just some sort of like dumb humor and stuff like that. But I, I do think that 
it is kind of making food and an interest in food safe for mainstream males. And I think that that is really good and important. And, um, if people are going to be more aware of what they're eating, I'm, you know, that's going to be a good thing. There's an interesting as well, male sibling rivalry in your book Uh between Jonathan Gold, whom we've mentioned, and his brother, a marine naturalist or conservationist who is always on his own blog, getting angry, it seems, at Jonathan for eating endangered species, whales or fish or whatnot. And it seems like it's not just Mark and Jonathan Gold, but a lot of the parties in your book, a lot of the eaters, they, they say... No, a, a food regulator will say, if you only knew what I knew, you wouldn't be eating that raw milk. Mm-hmm. The raw milk people say, well, if you knew what we knew, yeah. we, you wouldn't be eating anything but raw milk. And Jonathan Gold might say, he doesn't necessarily say it, but it seems like he's of the mind that, well, if you had the experiences he had, you would know how good all of these obscure foods are. And his brother says, yeah, but if you're a specialist in the way I am, you would never eat those fish because you'd know they're wonderful sea creatures, I think is mm-hmm. actual word. It seems like a lot of these people are Maybe this is just the state of humanity today, but we're kind of all talking past each other with, well, if only you were my ultra special, if you were the same ultra specialty that I'm in, you would do exactly what I do. And we're all sort of saying, if if only you were me, you would do like I'm doing. And no one's really, no one really can listen to each other because they're sort of too far down their own rabbit holes. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that it is very atomized scene, the, even among people who would say, I'm a foodie, you know, yeah. um, I, I, one of them sort of, uh, the, the Gold Brothers are a great example. Um, but generally I found that, um, the chefs who were, let's say, defiantly defending the use of foie gras or protesting the, um, the ban that was, uh, put in place in the summer of 2012 after a seven year, um, sort of working it out period where, where no progress was made. And so then the ban, happened and you can't, uh, sell foie gras in California anymore. Um, their views were so similar to the PETA activist views. The only difference was that those chefs believe that human beings should eat meat and the PETA activists <laughs> believe they should not eat meat. But in terms of the, they have a common enemy, which is industrialized animal agriculture. And, um, so often, uh, you know, there are sort of unexpected. I thought that the Rossum people, I wasn't expecting the Rossum people to be such avid meat mm-hmm. consumers. I thought that might be more of a vegan-y raw. You, know, you yeah, think I picture eating nuts and whatnot. Yeah, you think raw and then you think the next word you think is vegan. That's, right. You don't think it's not raw meat. That's right. not what you think. But that's what that very kind of specific and maybe avant-garde group of eaters was all about. And they really kind of thought that vegetarianism and veganism are problematic and, um, and, uh, sort of messed up and from a nutritional standpoint. So it is really interesting where there are points of overlap. And then you have this very big public, uh, kind of shift in, in embrace of the term foodie. So you have, there are just a ton of people out there who are not that particular actually about what they eat, mm-hmm. but it's just are declaring, I like food. Yes. And then, and then you have, um, Oh really? I like food too. You know? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, it's common ground, I guess. I mean, it, as I say, common ground is hard to find these days. So yeah. if it's just food, it's just food. 
Yeah, but and and then I think that they are being influenced by some of these more, you know, by the, by the more extreme and entrenched, and they may not even realize it. The more divided mm. sort of foodists. Why is bacon so popular now? Because it's fat and it's meat, and it appeals to our lizard brains. True, but I would believe that as like if I was asking you why has bacon always been popular, but yeah. now it's having such a moment. Like what's you can find bacon in any given food now if you go to the right place. Why now is it so popular? It seemed like it had a time when bacon was not a good thing to be eating, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. I think that we have, uh, that one of the effects of the food movement is a kind of um, enshrining of all of our <laughs> um, gluttonous impulses. Nice. So I, I think that there is just a no holds barred aspect to it and people um they they don't dine out to be monks i was in my mind contrasting a few eras here and i was thinking when did people really when would people least likely be the least likely to, to openly enjoy bacon and i would say maybe the mid to late 1980s mm -hmm. you know an era where you see even i was going to say movies parodying that era but even actual movies, television, memories from then. It's, you know, the, the restaurant plate with about three scraps of food on it and a mm -hmm. squiggle of sauce, mm -hmm. and it's $100, 1984 dollars. And people talk about the 80s as an era of excess, excessive consumerism, he who dies with the most toys wins, but it also seemed like an there was also a monkish restraint to eating in some way. Nowadays, it seems like the reverse. It's, it's no longer cool to consume as much as you can, but it is cool to eat as ravenously as you can. There's been an inversion, hasn't there? Yeah, that's interesting. In the 80s, we're, we're all about fat-free, too. And yes, that stuff. Give us stuff. Yeah, so there are, there are always a couple of different strains. Like, mm -hmm. you know, what are the sort of nutritional trends? Mm -hmm. Well, we are in a still, I think, although it may be beginning to erode the, the, the dominance of the um, kind of high protein as good health and low carb as good health. So the 80s were actually kind of carbalicious, but they were off. It was all about fat-free carbs. Mm -hmm. And, um, and now it, you know, this sort of Atkins South, but you know, those diets that say limit the carbohydrates and eat a lot of meat. So there's that, although I don't think that, I think that that is sort of, um, shifting, but there, I think you're absolutely right that there is a kind of, um, inverse, you know, it's like the hemline rule with the economy, <laughs> yes. with, with bacon and with, um, just indulgence in food. And, you know, it is a comfort and there has not been a lot to comfort Americans in, let's say since 2007, 2008, you know, the, the state of the economy is really imp imp ch just changing the way people can live day to day, um, still. And, um, and then there's the sense of, um, you know, America losing its preeminence in the world, which I think does affect Americans. I, I think it's a great opportunity for Americans to become more creative and, sure. and, um, and to innovate. But I think generally there are a lot of people who are a little less optimistic than, than they were before the crash. And I think, you know, food is a pleasure and, and, and to go to the most pleasurable foods is a, is a normal thing when there is sort of less, um, to reassure you in, 
the world. I was going to say, yeah, you go to these foods that stops you thinking about China for a few moments, but usually it's Chinese food. Yeah. So you can't really well, stop, can you? <laughs> but it's, but it is, it is, it, it somehow reassures you, you know, your belly is full. You're all of your, um, the, the five zones, taste zones on your tongue have been tickled and there's starve today. You won't starve today. Yeah. And if, you know, if you're putting a little meat on your bones for later, that's fine too. <laughs> that's, you know, the piggy bank. Isn't that, that is funny. Isn't that what, um, why piggy banks are the uh, place that we store our coins because I believe it, but I never heard that. The, the family pig was notionally the place where, you know, they eat the slop and then uh, it's there for, you know, if you're ever starving, Oh, so this is a 19th century rural reference. Yeah, it's a, it's a food storage reference. And then it became a place to put your money in it, that, that, that same notion. So, you know, maybe there is when our, when our piggy banks are a little depleted, we, <laughs> we turn to the bacon. That's a, a fair few theories embedded in this. Mm-hmm. When you, when you understand the eating of Los Angeles, what what else is what's next down the line in importance in understanding this city? The eating seems like to me right now it's number one. If you want to know what's going on in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. how things work here, but what else? I mean, it's not it's not Hollywood. It's not the freeways. What is it now? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's I think it's actually about. Um, I hope maybe this is hopeful of me. I think it's I think it's about um, designing and. Um, designing new institutions to address inequality. Mm-hmm. I, I think that this, this is a place where that is so evident. Um, and it is also so easy to avoid being aware of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, what's a, what's a type of inequality that I'm these institutions, of, I'm thinking of Skid Row. Uh, I sure. mean, I think well, Skid- you've written about quite a few times for the New Yorker. I'm really interested in it. I think it's, you know, it's a place where you see really entrenched, like it, Skid Row will never go away. There is a, um, there's actually too much money there in the, um, institutions that are there to help the destitute. Um, and there, there are too many programs there for it ever to go away. And I'm not saying it should go away, but when you visit it, you see that it is, it's a huge problem. And the way people are living is a huge problem. Um, and then there's gentrification downtown and you see, you know, and that's becoming, you know, when I moved here, everybody was talking about, Oh, downtown, downtown. And so I started to say, Oh, downtown, downtown. And people would say, Oh, that's just cause you're new. They, every 10 years they say downtown's going to happen, but you know what? It actually happened this time. Yeah. It is. I came here during the it boom and it totally seemed like it, it was already, you know, I mean, it already is. It, when, I, when I hear downtown, when I hear downtown is next, I, now I think that's wrong because it's current. It's current. Yeah. It's current. And I think that, that LA has an opportunity to, address that issue in a humane way that can be exported and can be an example. And I'm, you know, I don't know who the visionary is. Um, There's many possibilities, but I mean, in the writing for the New Yorker, it seems like when you want, not, not you specifically for many of my favorite writers at the New Yorker, when they want to get into a subject like that, whether it's about inequalities in a city, how, how a city is developing or indeed a new kind of eating, they get into it through somebody who might be a visionary, mm-hmm. one person. Is that is that a house a guideline at the New Yorker? Find someone really interesting and get into an issue through them. It seems like that works very well for you. I don't know if it's their thing or if it's your thing. 
Well, the New Yorker has a tradition of profile writing and, and I think, you know, maybe there is, maybe this is a matter of debate, but the magazine it's at least thinks of itself as, um, an originator of that form in American journalism and, um, and kind of the most consistent practitioner of it. I mean, you, you kind of get profiles in some other magazines, but it is really central to what the New Yorker does. Um, and I think it's just a recognition that, um, people are interested in people. And so it's a natural, you know, does a novel have a protagonist usually, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that for storytelling, it's, um, sort of, it's very satisfying for people. Mm but I mean, more than that, I, I don't know. It's not, um, it's just part of our tradition. I guess I'll say that. Do you get a sense of any difference at all between you living in Los Angeles, thinking about Los Angeles, writing about it and what interests you about Los Angeles and what, uh, people back in the mothership and the New Yorker think they, what, what they want, what they're fascinated about in Los Angeles between the fascinations you develop here and the fascinations one develops living across the country mm-hmm. couldn't be farther from Los Angeles, but they still know that it's a fascinating place. Is there a difference between those two types of fascination? I think I felt that more keenly at the beginning, um, that I was really interested in the kinds of stories I was hearing about LA that I didn't hear represented anywhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, I probably didn't, I'll I'll blame it on myself. I probably didn't know how to pitch those stories. Um, so a lot of those stories didn't happen, but Mm -hmm. once in a while they did. And then I started to feel like, okay, I can actually tell a story about LA that is not the story of Hollywood right. that there, you know, I, I have liked writing about Hollywood and the few times that I have done it, but I don't have to have a director throwing a telephone in every one of my uh, stories for uh, people uh, to feel like they're getting the story of LA. Right. And I think there has been in the 10 years that I've been here and been writing about LA an evolution in the country's idea of LA and in New York's idea of LA. And I think that it is now, um, that sort of frozen cliche that's as old, you know, it goes back to 1950 of what LA was like. Um, that has thawed and it is seen much more as a place, a kind of petri dish. And that's the story I'm much more interested in telling. That said, of course, I mentioned you've done a profile of James Cameron. Mm-hmm. You've, you've written about film. So when you're, you know, in that, in that profile is, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. It's been very highly regarded. A man of extremes, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. When you're writing a profile like that, which in, for somebody who didn't want to avoid the sort of classic director throwing a phone, uh, this is, oh, look at this weird, look at Holly weird type mm-hmm. story. You know, what, 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 what's in your mind when you're doing a story like that, that, if you did it wrong, could be a cliched Los Angeles Hollywood story. You know, how do you go about doing it in the way that would fascinate you? Well, James Cameron is such a brilliant human being that I, I just intuitively knew that it would be, he would be, maybe there would be some fun fireworks of, you know, not literal phone throwing, but you know, he was sort of known to be extreme in his, um, what he demands of his actors and his crews and, um, and just in his ambition. So I was, I was interested in his, uh, brilliance and his ambition and his, you know, reputed, um, lack of regard for the system and, and sometimes lack of regard for, um, how his, uh, vision might, um, 
you know, be difficult for others to execute. So I, that's what I thought was really interesting that it was, you know, he would allow me to do a Hollywood story because I am here and it is, it is a, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty, one of the big games in town, but, um, other people have done it. Other people continue to do it. Other people are doing great job at doing that, telling that story. But I was really interested in writing about this individual at a moment of, um, you know, very important innovation that that was a really a science story in a way, not a Hollywood story. And as I mentioned in your, among all your other writing you've done for the New Yorker, there was the postcard from Los Angeles blog you were doing for how, how long were you regularly doing that? It seems like it was 08, 09 around that neighborhood. Yeah, it was about a year. It was actually until I went to Japan on a fellowship and I just, you know, it didn't really make sense to continue it from there. So. Right. It's now that's where I'm going with it is, uh, you had the Los Angeles period in that blog. Then you Mm -hmm. began sending a lot of dispatches from Japan, which Mm -hmm. then not, not exactly culminated, but we then saw an article from you about the rise of the Ketai novel, Mm -hmm. the Sefa novel. Mm -hmm. But tell me spending that time in Japan and I was there recording interviews for another podcast a couple of years ago, but tell me what kind of perspective it gives you going far away from Los Angeles, what kind of perspective it gives you when you come back to the city, whether it is New York for a bit, whether it is Japan for six weeks, you know, is that, does that give a needed perspective on a city like this? And, you know, are there, are there, is there a checklist in your mind of places you really would like to leave for a while too and get a refreshed Mm. Los Angeles perspective from? Well, I always come back to LA with a sense of relief. I mean, almost since I've moved here, um, uh, but going to Japan in particular was important for me because it just made me sensitive to how much of a Pacific Rim city LA is. Uh, you could see the connection. Definitely. Yeah. And it, it just, it, um, that was, I think very, very helpful to me. Um, you know, going to Mexico city had the same effect. Um, I just Speaking went of eating. I wish I was eating there right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I just went there for fun. I wasn't working, but, um, you know, I do, I do find that, um, LA can be incredibly seductive and it, it is its own world. So it, it it's, it is good to get on an airplane and kind of, um, think from a different point of view a little bit, but I really do always come back here and just think, ah, oh, thank God, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and to bring it back to Jonathan gold, I mean, a line from your profile of him and it's in the book. He, he realized that he was going to go into the foreign service, but realized he could have the international experience. He had always sought in Los Angeles itself. Now, do you think that's true? Do you think people can have, can have that, can have the, can really have the world in microcosm? I mean, I remember the old banner at LAX. Do you remember that, that Via Ragosa banner that said, welcome to Los Angeles, the city that's a world in, in, mm-hmm. in itself? Yeah. I think, do you, do you think that's true? Is, is the world in microcosm functionally here? Well, I think the world's a pretty big place. Yes. Um, but I do think that you can satisfy your curiosity about a lot of different cultures mm-hmm. here, and you can definitely have a very diverse American experience here. Mm-hmm. And do you think you'll be returning to the Filipino part of uh, this town anytime soon for more balloon? <laughs> I, I don't think I can. <laughs> I think that was, I think that might have been a once in a lifetime experience. Yeah, that was too many. <laughs> 
I've been speaking here in Venice, Los Angeles, California with Dana Goodyear. She is a staff writer at The New Yorker. She's written on all sorts of subjects. Her latest book is Anything That Moves, Renegade Chefs, Fearless Eaters, and the Making of a New American Food Culture. Dana, thanks so much. Thank you. It was really fun talking to you. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org and with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.